Well, welcome to a brand new podcast. Um, if you're listening, you're probably one of one, but I appreciate your time. This podcast is called Baseball Marks the Time, and it's really going to be, over the, over the years, a meditation on the intersections of American and even world history and the game of baseball. Baseball, of course, like James Earl Jones' famous soliloquy in the movie Field of Dreams, the one constant through all the years has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. And I really do believe that's the case. I really can't see an American story that doesn't include quite a bit of baseball, everything from recreation on the prairie to the professionalization of the game, and then to Jackie to the segregation of the game, and then to Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, and the black pioneers that broke that racial barrier. 1947, the late 40s and early 50s, in the majors and the minors, a lot of players. And every one of those players has a story, and this it's all part of the tapestry of American history. So it's not just about baseball and box scores. There'll be a little bit of that. But mostly, this podcast, I intend to link our story with the game's history and just kind of smooth out the bumps, fill in some gaps, and provide a more complete accounting, a slightly more complete accounting, of the way the country was built, and where we've evolved to today, and like any good historian, perhaps look at where it's going to go tomorrow. So I'd like to start the very first episode with the story of a player that got me into the baseball history business. His name is Hal Trotsky. He played for the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago White Sox in the 1930s and 1940s. His career really reached its apex in 1936. He led the American League in runs batted in with 162. But this was a time when Jimmy Fox, Hank Greenberg, and uh, of course Lou Gehrig dominated first base in the American League and, and in baseball, really. So Hal Trotsky has largely been consigned to historical obscurity. This anonymity is not only due to the reality of his career overlap that triumvirate, but also because of what should have been the peak of his career, he was sidelined for two years with severe migraine headaches, a pain so debilitating that he became unable to take the field for days in a row. So let's talk about Hal. <clears throat> he was born Harold Arthur Trajavosky. November 11th, 1912, John and Mary, the family were second-generation immigrants from Bohemia and had moved to a 420-acre farm outside Norway, Iowa. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, Bohemia doesn't exist anymore. It's been cut up and renamed as parts of Czechoslovakia, I believe a little bit of Austria, that whole not-quite-Balkan, not-quite-Europe part of the world. Um, but a great number of immigrants, we call them, we kind of classify them as, as Czech immigrants today, Czechoslovakia, but really the place they were from at the time was Bohemia. The reason they moved to Norway, Iowa, is because in 1862, the Land Grant Act basically entitled anyone, citizen or not, a plot of land 
uh, I believe, 10 acres. Um, and then the, if they took the opportunity to move to this unsettled country, I mean, in Iowa at the time, there were still Indians roaming throughout the prairie. She had to move there. You had to endure the weather, establish farms, survive the Indians, and in effect, settle the country for a pretty low cost in exchange for a parcel of land that was yours after a certain amount of time. So the family had moved there in 1912 to join a bunch of the other Bohemian immigrants that were already established in Norway. And that's a different story for a different time, how the town became to be and why it's, why it's called Norway in the first place. It really is named Norway for the country. Um, and there were, there were dozens of those kinds of towns proliferating throughout the Midwest. But in the case of the Trotskys or the Trotjavoskis at the time, in 1912, Harold showed up. In 1917, by 1917, he and his two sisters, Annette and Esther, and his brother Victor, lived with their mother and father and worked that 420-acre farm uh, just outside of Norway, between Cedar Rapids and Norway. Trotsky had a really impressive schoolboy career. He was courted with uh, varying degrees of intensity by the Philadelphia Athletics, St. Louis Cardinals, and the Cleveland Indians. He graduated from high school in 1930 and was offered a minor league contract by the Cardinals, but he didn't really know how to proceed. So he called on Bing Miller in nearby Vinton, Iowa. And Miller, at the time, was an outfielder and a member of Connie Mack's uh, powerhouse Philadelphia athletic team that had just played in their second of three consecutive World Series. Miller, of course, was delighted to talk to the boy. Miller knew Trojavatsky's reputation and told him to do nothing until Miller had a chance to talk to Connie Mack. And Hal drove home from that meeting pretty content, and yet literally arrived back at the driveway and walked in, and there's his father, and the Indians' chief Midwestern scout, Cedar Rapids native Cy Slapnica. Um, Trotsky later told a columnist for the uh, Cleveland Plain dealer, Gordon Kobeldick, I like Slap. And after we talked baseball for a while, he suggested I sign with him. Evidently, Slapnik had been aware of Hal's prowess, but hadn't felt any urgency in pursuing him until he got wind that the A's and the Cardinals were interested too. So after almost no most deliberation, Hal chose the Indians. He signed that first contract, Harold Trotsky, but from then on started using the shorter Trotsky, as did his siblings, ironically. A contract offer from Connie Mack arrived three days later, but Hal returned it unsigned with a note explaining what had happened and apologizing to Mr. Mack for the inconvenience. Um, Connie Mack, of course, wished Hal the best and followed him through the rest of Hal's career. Trotsky reported to the local Class D Cedar Rapids Bunnies in early 1931. $65 a month. He was primarily a pitcher, but he was one that had the odd habit, kind of like Hank Aaron would uh, 20 years later, odd habit of hitting cross-handed from the right side of the plate. So he would, Slapnica came to the park to check on his prospect one day and suggested I guess the manager hadn't, Paul Sparrow had not, suggested that Hal retain his grip but switch to a left-handed batting stance. That year, in the Mississippi Valley League, he, uh, in 162 at-bats, he got managed 49 hits, 3 homers, a 302 batting average, followed up next year with a 307 batting average for Burlington, 331 in Quincy, and then 15 homers in 68 games in Quincy before they got the attention of Cleveland. And they became a member of the Toledo Mud Hens for 1933. They were the next step down from Cleveland. 
After that 1933 mud-in season, Cleveland called for a cup of coffee, and out goes Hal, September 11, 1933, starting in place of, at first base in place of Harley Boss. Trotsky went 0 for 3 against the Senators, Monty Weaver, but notched his first hit the next day off General Crowder. On the 18th, he collected his first major league home run off Boston Red Sox pitcher Gordon Rhodes. The day before that homer, September 17th, Hal actually had a brush with baseball royalty. The second game of a doubleheader against the Yankees, he was playing deep behind first base when Babe Ruth hit a screaming line drive down the line that carried the rookie's mitt almost halfway into right field. Uh, Notably, Hal later had that glove bronzed. He kept it. He had knocked it completely off. So after retrieving the glove, the rookie had to come up there and hold Ruth to first base. But for me, this was 1933. Ruth is just about at the end of his line. And he tells Trotsky, don't worry about holding me on, kid. I'm not going no place. Just drop back a little and play it safe. If Gehrig hit one at you up here, that close to first, it would take your head off. So, Al backed off, and true to his word, Ruth just stood a few feet from first and awaited the Yankee onslaught. It wasn't a big deal to the babe, I am sure, but evidently Trotsky never forgot that small kindness. Anyway, that September, 44 at-bats, Hal hit 295 with a homer, a double, two triples, drove in eight, and in 1934, he made his Major League full-time debut as the starting first baseman for the Cleveland Indians. That year, his rookie year, he played every inning of all 154 games, batted 330, 35 home runs, drove in 142, and posted a slugging at percentage of 598. He finished seventh as a rookie in balloting for the American League Most Valuable Player. And just a note, Triple Crown winner Lou Gehrig that year was only finished in fifth in the MVP. Today, MVP, Triple Crown, almost synonymous. It would be almost impossible to win the Triple Crown and not win the MVP from the writers. But back then in the 30s, Mickey Cochran, catcher-manager of the, the Tigers, who actually won the pennant, took the award. So fabulous 1934. 1935, uh, kind of a sophomore slump. Trotsky really fell back. Um, but he tried something. He was in September that year. Tried something different. His manager from Toledo, Steve O'Neill, was now coaching uh, in Cleveland, uh, managing actually, and suggested that Trotsky try hitting from the right side against the Senators. The next day, in the opener of a doubleheader in Washington, Hal came up in the first inning and took a right-handed stance. This is a left-handed batter with a right-handed stance and stunned his teammates. He smoked an Orland Rogers curveball for a single. He made an out batting left-handed in the fifth and then hit again from the right side in the eighth. And this time he homered off Leon Pettit into the very far reaches of the left field bleachers at Griffith Stadium in D.C., 23rd home run of the year. Overall, in the two games, he knocked out five hits in 10 at-bats, three singles on a homer from the right side, and one long double from the left. But it was a quirky thing, and he said, I'm never going to do this again. He told reporters that was the end of his switch-hitting experiment. Whatever it did, it worked for 1936. He had one of the most sensational seasons in, in baseball history. He put together a 28-game hitting streak, Broke his own team record for home runs in a single season. Um, drove in 162 runs to lead the American League. And his total base total of 405, 405 total bases, is still one of the top 20 seasons of all time. If you totaled his RBIs over his first three seasons, that number was greater than the totals amassed by Gehrig, 
Fox or Greenberg over their first three years. Obviously, Connie Mack had seen something. This kid, this still a young man, he was only 24 years old, was obviously going to be a superstar. He was married. He married Lorraine Glenn. And they started, in 1936, they had their first son, Harold Jr., who ended up playing baseball briefly uh, 20 years later. 37 to 39 were pretty static. Um, his average went up, his power went down as he tried to change his swing. Of course, the, uh, the team ownership basically docked him pay because his homer total went down. Even though his batting productivity went up, and by modern metrics, he'd be, been considered a much more effective hitter in 36 to 38 than he was in 34 and 35. 1939, they named him, the Indians named him team captain, a huge honor, but he was playing for an incredibly hard man, Oscar Vitt. Vitt was a former teammate of Ty Cobb, and after he had left playing baseball for the Tigers, he took up managing and had a brilliant career um, with the New York Yankees AAA team in New Jersey. And so the Indians hired him, uh, and he looked and sounded great to the press. He made friends with reporters, had an easy way about him in interviews. But among the players, it was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he was Mr. Hyde with the players. He was a complete tool. Um, driving guys like Bob Feller and Mel Harder, two of his best pitchers, almost to the brink. But Trotsky, as captain, took a lot of that flame spray. Um, and yet the stress probably exacerbated what became his migraine problem. Because he started in 1939, by 1939, he had to pull himself for a few games because of the headaches. It was becoming increasingly difficult for him to bring the necessary intensity to the park every day. Even though he was only 26 years old when the season ended, the pain from the headaches completely sapped his vigor. Here's an athlete, a superstar, a slugger, the prime of his career, and the headaches are so bad and so untreatable that he can, he's not able to play. It's a game he dominates. But over the winter, the headaches faded. Trotsky consulted several doctors in Cleveland and Cedar Rapids, but none were able to pinpoint the source of his discomfort. As the frequency of the attacks decreased, he threw himself into farming, family life, and by the end of the year, he was ready to return to baseball. 1940, the course opened with Bob Feller throwing first opening day no-hitter in history. Um, but 1940 proved to be a pretty disastrous year for Trotsky's reputation. Again, remember, Oscar Vitt, terrible human being, great baseball manager in terms of uh, strategy and tactics, terrible human being uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships. The players ultimately in June on a train trip decided that they were going to go see the owner and say, Mr. Bradley, Alva Bradley, the owner of the Indians, Mr. Bradley, we need you to fire Vitt. He is tearing us up. We can win the pennant. This club is good enough to win the pennant, but we need you to fire Vitt. That, um, Hosky, Trotsky, had spoke, spoke with Frank Gibbons of the Cleveland Press about that. Um, he told this, the reporter that the Indians could win the pennant with their current players, but had no chance as long as Vitt was the manager. Gibbons, wisely, cautioned how to wait and see how things turned out before doing anything rash. Um, ironically, that was the same advice Trotsky had given his teammates earlier. The following morning, the players checked out of their rooms, um, discussed solutions to the Vitt problem, made arrangements to go see Alba Bradley, uh, and then on June 13th, tragedy found Trotsky. As they were getting ready the next day to go see the owner, and Trotsky and Feller and Harder were going to lead this delegation, his mother died in Iowa. 
He immediately went to the train station, the airport, um, and flew home. And he was home for about 10 days. The rest of the players, Harder, Feller, and the others, went in to meet with Albert Bradley, gave him their list of demands, said, we need you to fire him, we can win this game. And it was supposed to be a meeting, a private meeting between Bradley and the players. But word got out. Once word got out, it hit the papers, and the team instantly became known notoriously as the crybabies throughout baseball. Because the crybaby incident, there were stories in newspapers later on where they would show players with baby bonnets uh, drawn over their heads. They would, the fans would throw uh, baby bottles at them on the field. It was humiliation. They were booed. It was something that never, ever, ever should have seen the light of day. And yet the players were the ones that were villainized. And remember the time. This is 19, what, 1940, pre-war. This is a, a time when authority meant a great deal and that was, which simply wasn't challenged, especially in baseball. Ironically, or oddly, in 1951, 10 years later, the Cleveland News unearthed a memo from Bradley about the incident, and it read in part from Alva Bradley, the manager, the owner, said, we should have won the pennant. Our real trouble started when a group of 10 players came to my office and made four distinct charges against Vitt and asked for his dismissal. The four charges against Vitt on investigations I have made were 100% correct. So Bradley didn't fire Vitt until the end of the year. Um, and that was the pretext was they didn't they lost to the Tigers in the last season, last series of the season. Um, and that's a different story in and of itself. But Vitt got fired. Um, one thing that had happened earlier that year before Vitt was fired, on August 11th, the 1940, Trotsky became the 17th major league pitch player to hit 200 home runs. And he, he got a nice certificate from uh, the American League that he kept that well into all through his life and still had it. His wife still had it, his widow, two or three decades after his death. I don't know where it is now, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting little piece of paper. Oddly enough, 1940 was also the first time since his rookie year that he failed to drive in at least 100 runs. We only hit, drove in 93, hit 39 doubles, and led the team with 25 homers, but he was missing more and more games. Those that those headaches followed him in 1941 and mid-season, August 11th, he, uh, he left the game. He told them he retired, went home to Iowa, continued to see doctors. The war had started. It started in December of 41. Um, he was determined he was unfit for Army service, so he was forced to uh, sit at home and farm, which bothered him as a patriot, but he was a pretty good farmer. And so that worked out okay. Um, he passed 1942 and 1943 on the farm. In 1944, the war is still going, but remember, they have depleted the player uh, inventory. There is nobody to play baseball right now. They're all off fighting. They, there was a point at 1944 in which they had a one-arm player, Pete Gray, end up playing one, a season for the St. Louis Browns. Ironically, the Major League and the American League, the National American League wouldn't use black players, but they would use disabled players. Uh, again, another story for another day, but a fascinating little look at the way race was such a taboo at that era. Anyway, irrespective of that, Trotsky tried out for the White Sox. They convinced him to come on out. He made the team, 1944, signed for $45,000, the biggest salary he'd ever received, um, and led the... Uh, 
the White Sox in home runs. Now, he only hit 10, but it was enough to lead the team in home runs. Um, I talked to a, a former player just before we passed that had played with Trotsky, and, and, and the player said, you know, Comiskey Park at the time was just too big. Trotsky was still a specimen, even with his time off. But t- 10 home runs for that team, that was he was easily the best power hitter on the squad. In 1944, White Sox won only 71 games, so Trotsky quit again. In 1945, he was working at the Amana, Iowa refrigeration plant for the war effort. Um, they had figured out how to control his headaches with B1 shots and a reduction in his daily intake of dairy, which is ironic that an Iowa dairy farmer was allergic to the very stuff his animals produced and that he consumed so frequently in order to maintain his athleticism. But the treatments lessened the migraines a lot. And at 1946, he went back to the White Sox. They, uh, they offered him a contract. He only hit 254 and two homers, 31 home runs, and he hung him up for good. He left baseball completely. By this time, he not only had Hal Jr. as a son, he had sons James and Lynn and a daughter, Mary Kay. And so he joined the White Sox as a scout. Between 1947 and 1950, he beat the bushes in the tiny towns of eastern Iowa looking for the next him. Um, he managed a semi-pro baseball team, the Amana Freezers, sponsored by Amana Refrigeration. And that team actually had future Major League player Jack Dittmer and future NFL Hall of Fame player Emlyn Tunnell on that squad. They went 27-2 and and just missed qualifying for the Amateur World Series in Kansas. But by 1950, Hal left the White Sox and settled down to farm and took up agricultural real estate sales around Cedar Rapids, 1962. It was funny, the, the real estate sales, one of the deals that Trotsky made was if you bought a farm, huh, so to speak, from him, he'd give you a piece of his old memorabilia, he'd give you some spikes or a bat or a ball or a glove. It was kind of his uh, little way of throwing in a sweetener for the deal. Unfortunately, it also basically widely dispersed his entire baseball uh, souvenir collection, if you will, mementos. He had very few of them by the time he died. 1978, 1979, he's moving around very slowly. He's not quite 70 yet, but he's still moving slowly. On June 18, 1979, at the age of 66, he collapsed in the kitchen of his Cedar Rapids apartment. The doctor said the heart attack was so massive that he was dead by the time he reached the floor. He's buried at St. Michael's Cemetery on a hillside overlooking his hometown in Norway, Iowa. That's the Hal Trotsky story in a nutshell. What, it, what's, what is the American history piece of it? What's the history, the relevance of it? A couple of things, I think, are interesting about Hal and his career. One was, in the age before social media, you were basically left, if you lived in, say, Norfolk, Virginia, your understanding of Major League Baseball was limited basically to what you could read in the sporting news and the local press, the AP Wire, the UPI, the wire stories that provided game summaries and box scores. And that was about it. So everyone knew Greenberg, Gehrig, Fox, but far, far fewer were really aware of what Hal Trotsky was and who he was and how he performed. Um, He never made an all-star team, which was... It kind of not sad, but it's just a nod, tip of the cap to the incredible competition at the time. You don't choose when you when you live or when you play, and he happened to play at a time, a golden age of first baseman in the American League. So the very anonymous respect, in respect with respect to what he did on the field. So 
to lead the league in anything significant like that and to have that 405 total bases for a single season, he's still among the top, I believe, 2025 players in lifetime slugging average percentage. Um, incredible career. Shortened because of the headaches and, and anonymous because of the absence of coverage beyond what the reporters felt was relevant for you to hear. What was the, what was the story? New York, Detroit. Those were the, you know, Jimmy Fox and his muscles. Those kinds of things were what you'd hear about. Hal Trotsky, and eh, not so much. So that was one thing. The other thing that I find interesting, fascinating about Trotsky's story is growing up as a farmer and a ball player in that World War II time frame. So much happened during the course of his career. When he started in 1934, this was pre-war, early, the hard part of the Great Depression. He's a major league player, which really helped. But he's a hard part of the Great Depression. Baseball is completely segregated. Very few, even barnstorming teams, would meet up uh, and play each other like they would later in the 40s. And again, he plays his entire career. The Depression eases. All of a sudden now, Hitler and Japan and the United States goes to war on two fronts. That's during the early part of his, the end of his career. And then he farms because of the worker fight dictum from President Roosevelt. He had to do one or the other. And since he was not qualified to fight, he was forced to work. It didn't bother him. It wasn't like he was, you had to compel him to work. But he lived through that uh, from a different perspective. He didn't charge over battlefields and such. He actually did his farming thing. And he was, he, again, he was a very productive farmer, given the technology of the time. No one mocked his farming ability, even though he was a tremendous baseball player as well. And then finally, the, the, uh, the interesting thing, it was a very segregated game. The year he retired, 1946, was the last year before Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby et al., really kind of shattered the color barrier and integrated the, started the desegregation process for baseball. So he was denied the opportunity to play against some of those incredible players that were also denied the chance to play against him. It was an interesting time to be a Midwesterner. The early to mid uh, 20th century, up into the 70s, he lived a tremendous life. He was a hardcore church-going man, a good Catholic. His wife was too. He raised his family the same way. He could be very stern on, hard on his kids, but not in a abusive way, just in a very hard, again, stern, taciturn way when he wanted to be. But he was also a goofball. His, one of his nieces, Susan Volz, she passed away in 2017. Um, she would tell stories about how he would, and she was a kid. She was like nine or 10 years old and shy, smart girl, retiring though. And he would just come around her and make goofy faces. And if she didn't smile, he'd give her a nickel. And he'd, he'd do whatever it takes to keep his nickel. It's just not the kind of person you think about when you look at a six foot, two inch, 230 pound superstar. But that was how. Family man first, real person first, baseball player second. Intersecting American history as a Midwesterner um, in a way that we've heard the stories before, but his was a little bit different because of his baseball prowess. All right, that's episode one. If you enjoyed it, if you're the one person listening, thank you. Um, I'm going to continue to make these because I really enjoy them. I understand that the audience might be small, but eh, I enjoy it. <laughs> 
If you have any questions or comments, email comments, Norway BB Research, all one word, Norway BB Research at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to take them. Thanks very much, and I look forward to talking with you at some point soon.